0: Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee, all the best. Today's book is called The Gender Knot, Unraveling Our Patriarchal Legacy. And it's the first text we've read that was written by a man since we read John Stuart Mill's The Subjection of Women several months ago. I have loved reading all of these books by women, but as I read this book, it hit me for the first time really how important it was that a man had written it. And here's why. One of the biggest lessons that I've realized in my education on racism recently is that society often places the burden of changing racist structures onto people of color when the responsibility should be on the people who benefit from and uphold those racist structures. And so racism is a problem for white people to solve. White people need to own it. And likewise, I realized as I was kind of finishing reading this book and reflecting on, you know, that this was written by a man, I thought this is really powerful because sexism, which exists in all cultures in various ways, is often treated as a quote unquote women's issue. So there's a TED talk on this by Jackson Katz that's really excellent and I highly recommend um, people to watch it. And Jackson Katz points out that men often kind of tune out and they don't pay attention when something is presented as a women's issue. And so I really love and appreciate that Dr. Alan G. Johnson, um, who was a sociologist and a college professor, he was a man and he took on patriarchy as his life's work to educate people about the system of patriarchy. So I was really, really gratified also to see a lot of online reviews of this book were written by men. And these men said that this book helped them see things that they had never considered before and really changed their lives. So I love this book and I would invite uh, listeners who are women, share this episode and share this book with the men in your lives. And men who are listening, Thank you for listening. Thank you for doing this work. And this might be a book that you want to get and read. So I'm super excited to discuss the book today. And I want to welcome my reading partner today, Casey Cruz. Thank you so much for being here, Casey. Hi, Amy. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> so Casey and I met a few years ago. It feels like we've known you forever, actually, but it's not been <laughs> that long, honestly. But Casey became a part of our family's little bubble of safe people during the COVID lockdown and was our family's fitness coach when all the gyms were closed down. And sometimes we had such bad wildfire smoke that we couldn't run outside. And so we would quickly like shut the doors and And Casey was in our little pod. And so she would be our fitness coach. And we had these really great discussions in between jump roping and doing burpees. And <laughs> Casey, you're just so energetic and cheerful and optimistic and so hardworking. I just think you're such a great, honestly, like a role model for my daughters. And I love hanging out with you and you're just a dear friend to our family. So we just love
1: you. It feels like I've known you guys for a long time and I'm just so grateful for, honestly, the pandemic because if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't have met you guys. And um, I've really appreciated all the great conversations that have gone on during our fitness sessions. Yeah, me too.
0: So this project came up, I think for the first time, maybe Casey, maybe we had talked about it before, but I remember one time we were working out and for some reason in the conversation, you started telling us about your family and your grandmother. And then I think it's your great, great, great grandmother. And we were so mesmerized during that conversation that like, whatever workout we were doing, we just stopped and, and just like, were just enthralled and we just found it so moving. And so that conversation led to me asking you to be on the podcast. So I wonder if you can tell us all about yourself, kind of do your bio like we traditionally do, but I'd love it if you would make sure that you in- include
1: that story of, of your ancestors. Hi, everyone. My name's Casey. I am the oldest of two children. Um, It's just me and my brother. My father's family is from Guam, so I'm Guamanian, and my mother's family is a mix of German and Cherokee, and I just learned this, Palatine Indian. I was born and raised in Los Altos, California, and I currently live in Los Altos at the moment. Um, I recently graduated from Chico State In the year of 2020. Sadly, during the whole pandemic, I graduated online. I graduated with a bachelor's in kinesiology and a minor in adaptive physical activity. So, for anyone that doesn't know what kinesiology means, it's just the study of the body and its movement. I had so many life changing experiences during my time at Chico. I was very involved in the kinesiology program and I helped individuals with physical, and intellectual disabilities of all ages, be involved in different sports and exercise. Um, I also interned at an elderly care facility for those that have dementia and memory loss issues, and I actually led group exercise classes, which was really fun. Um, So I was really interactive with the Chico community. Also, another big part of me is that I've played soccer since the age of four, and I actually ended up playing for the university for about two years. Um, So I've always had a passion for sports and exercise, and I fell in love with all the physical and mental challenges sports and physical activity brought. And also at the university, I found a big passion for helping others achieve their goals through challenging themselves with physical activity and different sports. And it's led me to where I'm at today. I'm currently a personal trainer where I met Amy. Amy and her family, they were my first clients ever. I didn't know that. Yeah, you guys are my first clients ever. And so that's, that's why your family means so much to me is because you know, I have a little special Mm. place in my heart for you guys. And I'm also a strength and conditioning coach for athletes. And I'm also a group trainer at F45. So that's a little bit about me and where I'm from, where my family's from. But then also going into that conversation I had with Amy a while back, um, I brought up my great, great, great grandmother. And Basically, I forget what the conversation was about but or how it came about, but basically as a little girl, I had to do this family tree project where we had to make a visual board of our family lineage on both sides. So when it came to my mom's side, I asked her to help me kind of draw the tree, and she ended up telling me about my great-great-great-grandmother and how she was Cherokee Indian and she was the chief's daughter. And I remember being so, like, surprised and excited that I felt like I had royalty in my family almost. (laughs) Uh, Her name was Starshine Chitwood, and she was traded for a saddle and a horse to be married to my great, great, great grandpa. She birthed 13 children and later changed her name to Sarah. And I remember my mom telling me the reason why she changed her name was to fit in with American culture. So as a little girl, I did not um, think about – I was just so enamored with that, that I was related to a chief's daughter. And I remember as a little girl, I'd play imaginary games with my friends, and we would play those um, games where we'd live off the land. We'd build, like, baskets, make rock paint, and we gave each other names, and I would always pick Starshine. And I always felt like I was living like my great-great-great-grandmother through the imaginary game. Um but then as I grew up and I learned more about the treatment of Native Americans in our country like the broken treaties the murder just so much pain and sadness and the mistreatment I just started to think about that story told to me years ago and it's I don't know it's was really sad and frustrating because her legacy in my family was that she bared 13 children and that she was traded for goods and that I knew nothing else about her what her life was before she was traded to my great 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 grandpa and was married off and what what her life was like even living like married to my grandpa my grandfather and what it what her life was like living in America under I don't know just without her family. And so that was kind of the little story about my my grandmother and that was her. I mean, amazing. So do I remember correctly that you actually
0: have a photo of her? You have a photo. I do. Right?
1: I have a photograph and I don't have it with me at the moment, but it's on my family tree and mm. it's in a storage box. And I, it's her in American clothing in a rocking mm. chair. And so you don't really, and it was in black and white. So you don't really get to, I don't really like you didn't get to see her really as starshine chitwood you saw her as sarah in that picture is what i remember so yeah
0: it's heartbreaking <laughs> it's amazing and what i mean really what a gift though that you have a picture of her and you know her name i get, i mean that's so that's so powerful and beautiful but thanks for sharing that casey yeah so the next question I usually ask is what breaking down patriarchy means to you. And you can take that as like, I don't know, the word patriarchy. You can think about this podcast project or however you want to interpret that. What does that mean to yeah,
1: you? Yeah, definitely. I I just I really think about your podcast and like literally think about breaking down patriarchy. And I kind of visualize because I'm a very visual person about kind of like an old like dilapidated, beat up building that has a bunch of cracks, shattered windows, and its foundation is somewhat still standing up, but almost needs to be torn down and rebuilt. And I kind of use that to kind of think about breaking down patriarchy, where creating conversation where we talk about what's gone on in history, sharing our own stories that are significant to us and the people around us and surrounding gender roles and our culture, our workplace, our school. And in our society, and sharing those experiences, because what that does is allows a space for education, compassion, and relatedness, and that can allow us to kind of break away from these old and outdated perspectives of men and women in our society, and create conversations so that we can progress forward and create change. And that's mm-hmm. what I, what I think breaking down patriarchy means to me.
0: Awesome, thanks, Casey. Well, I'm really interested in your point of view. I, I mean, I told you this when I asked you to to have this conversation with me. As we talk about this book, it's really valuable to me because you bring, each reading partner brings, you know, all these really neat different parts of themselves to this topic. And for you, I know like a lot of my reading partners have been kind of my age bracket or older. We've had a few younger, but I've wanted to have kind of more young perspectives. And I think you're just a couple years older than my my oldest daughter. And so just having a new generation of young women and, and then all of the aspects of your identity that you just brought up as an athlete and the side of your family from Guam and the side of your family that's Cherokee. And I'm just so excited to hear from your perspective. So. Yeah, I mean, it's your generation that's soon going to be running the world and I'll be on my way out. So (laughs) super excited to see like, to hear your thoughts on all of these issues. So before we start digging into the book, I'll just quickly share a, a little bit about the author. So this book is by Alan G. Johnson, and he was born in 1946 in Washington, D.C. He earned his bachelor's degree in sociology and English at Dartmouth, and then his Ph.D. in sociology at the University of Michigan. His dissertation for his Ph.D. focused on women's roles in Mexico City. And after receiving his Ph.D., he worked at Wesleyan University in the sociology department. After he left Wesleyan, he worked at Hartford College for Women, teaching sociology and women's studies. And during this time, he wrote a number of books, and one of those books is the book we're discussing today, The Gender Knot, Unraveling Our Patriarchal Legacy, and that was published in 1997. And afterward, he became a corporate speaker and a freelance lecturer, and he was a husband and father and grandfather, and he passed away in 2017. So we'll start trading off chapters, and I took chapter one and chapter two. So Dr. Johnson starts out the book with a description of a workshop that he did on gender issues in the workplace, where he asked the workers at a specific company to come together at these conference tables and brainstorm lists of how gender shapes their lives at work and also beyond work. And so what he used to do is divide them into a men's group at one table and a women's group at another table. And so in this part of the book, he describes how both groups describe a system that advantages men and disadvantages women in many, many ways. And this is what he says about it. Quote, the accumulated sum hangs heavy in the air. There are flashes of anger from some of the women, but many don't seem to know what to do with how they feel. The men stand and listen, muted, as if they would like to find a safe place to hide or some way to defend themselves, as if all of this is about them personally. In response to questions about how the lists make them feel, one man says that he wants to hang on to the advantages without being part of their negative consequences for women. Depressed is a frequent response from the women. On a scale both large and small, we are faced with the knowledge that what gender is about is tied to a great deal of suffering, injustice, and trouble. But our not knowing what to do with that knowledge binds us in a knot of fear, anger, and pain, of blame, defensiveness, guilt, and denial. We are unsure of just about everything except that something is wrong. And the more we pull at the knot, the tighter it gets end quote. So I love that introduction, just talking about how the gender not, that it just feels like we can't make progress because we know there's a problem, but we don't know what to do about it. So I thought one of the most important parts from this chapter is this one. He says, quote, male dominance promotes the idea that men are superior to women. And I'm going to pause really quickly and just throw in, I, I want to say that I don't personally know any men who would say just straight out that they believe men are superior to women. I don't think. I hope not. (laughs) But what I find is that men are often in denial of the structure that we all live in. And that structure really does place men in a superior position, even if individual men don't claim superiority or think that they're superior. And Alan Johnson says, quote, If men occupy superior positions, it is a short leap to the idea that men themselves must be superior. If presidents, generals, legislators, priests, popes, and corporate CEOs are all men with a few token women, then men as a group become identified with superiority. It is true that most men in patriarchies are not powerful individuals and spend their days doing what other men tell them to do, whether they want to or not. But at the same time, every man's standing in relation to women is enhanced by the male monopoly over authority in patriarchal societies. And then he continues later about how women feel in this system. He says, To see herself as a leader, for example, a woman must first get around the fact that leadership itself has been gendered through its identification with manhood and masculinity as part of patriarchal culture. While a man might have to learn to see himself as a manager, a woman has to be able to see herself as a woman manager who can succeed in spite of the fact that she is not a man. And just one more quote on this topic. He says, Living in a patriarchy means that every woman must come to grips with an inferior gender position and that whatever she makes of her life will be in spite of it. With the exception of child care and other domestic works and a few paid occupations related to it, women in almost every field of adult endeavor must still labor under the presumption of being inferior to men interlopers from the margins of society who must justify their participation and their right to be counted as, quote unquote, one of the guys. And that's the end of that quote. And I'll say this uh, conversation on this topic just happened like two weeks ago. I was talking with a man that I know really well. He's a really wonderful man. But he was talking about having to go to the doctor he hates going to the doctor. This is not my husband, by the way, just in case people are listening. They're like, is this Eric? It's not Eric. But this man said, oh, I have a woman doctor. She's actually really good. I really like her. And I, I mean, this was recently, and I wrote it down right after the conversation. So I am not exaggerating. He really did say, I have a woman doctor, and she's actually really good. I really like her. She's, she's smart, and she's very thorough. And he said that he told her, wow, you're the first woman doctor I've ever had. And I really like you. And then he said, I just tell her she's not allowed to touch me. So I was there just like listening to him say this. And I just thought, can you imagine someone saying that about a man? If you just flip it like, oh, I went to the doctor. Did you know I have a man doctor? And you know what? He's actually really smart. He's really capable. Like, what a shock. And so I told my doctor, wow, you're a really good man doctor. And but, you know, because you're a man, you're not allowed to do part of your job by examining my body, obviously, because, you know, you're a man. Right. And so I just think of that doctor. I'm sure that this man was not the first person to feel this way, which she could probably pick up on. I don't know if anybody articulated it to her that clearly, but I don't know. Maybe she gets that all the time from people. That's exhausting. And I just thought, it's no wonder that women report higher anxiety in the workplace. If they take those little, it's like death by a thousand paper cuts, right? Like just those tiny little, and sometimes big, not, I wouldn't call them aggressions because I do know that the intention of this man was not to harm her or insult her,
1: but it is insulting and it, and it would make her job so much harder. And I would have to say that I've experienced that as a female in the fitness industry and a new personal trainer. I mean, my dad prefaced to me before really diving into this career. He was like, you are going to be underestimated and you are going to be doubted by many of your peers and superiors and because I am female. And I mean, it sucks that my own dad has to tell me that because it is true. It does happen. And it's super frustrating because I have actually had that happen to me where an old client of mine had a partner and she really wanted him to work out with her and was like, come join a few sessions with my awesome trainer. And he made this ignorant comment. And he was like, "No, like sh- you guys will take it too easy on me. You're you're not going to challenge me enough." And says mm. something along the lines like, "You know, because she's female, she's not going to challenge me enough. I'm stronger than her." And it mm. it had I, to me, it felt like a an ego thing, and like he was very prideful. Um, but the fact that because I am female, that's why he underestimated my abilities, and um that I experienced that firsthand. And after my, I mean, I went to my dad right after and I was like, you're right. Like, this is not going to be the last time that some man and maybe woman as well are going to challenge me because I'm a female personal trainer and they're not going to judge me based off my abilities. They, they're they going to judge me on my gender um, first. And yeah, it's very frustrating and it makes me want to roll my eyes and you know, almost yell at the person, but that's not going to solve anything. Um, and yeah, I definitely relate to this woman doctor. I can't speak for her because I wasn't there or don't know what she was thinking, but i mean i'm I'm sure she's experienced other um men say the same thing about her, and I definitely can relate. Hm
0: that is such a bummer.
1: I'm so sorry that that happened. It's really discouraging, yeah it 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 definitely is, but that just shows that there's so much more um I guess there's so much more progress to be made that like your gender is considered first before your professionalism in the workplace is what I'm trying to say,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So he goes on to say that like men have a hard time in their lives, for sure, because of lots of different reasons. And there are different intersecting aspects of identity that can make life difficult for men, for sure. And he says that that this can happen, quote, because of race or other subordinate standing, but not because they are men. It is in this sense that patriarchies are male-dominated, even though most individual men may not feel dominant, especially in relation to other men." So yeah, I just feel like this comes up in conversations, for me, talking with men all the time. Patriarchy does not mean that all men are tyrants or even that all men are empowered and feel powerful in their lives. And, you know, thinking about the men I know that um, certainly men of color I know that experience like really dangerous racism in our country. That's a huge, important issue. And men that have disabilities um, that I know in my life, too. And being human in many in all these different ways is really hard. And men and boys struggle with all kinds of things. And I even see my husband and my son and my brother and my nephews, they struggle with all kinds of different challenges. And a lot of those challenges are no different than the struggles that my daughters and sisters and nieces struggle with. But what Dr. Johnson is saying is that in addition to those individual struggles, girls and women have to struggle with structural inequities based on gender. And so it's like, you know, they they can't even get out of the gate like you just described, Casey. Like, Sure, maybe that guy would have had a criticism of the way you coach, but you he wouldn't even hire you. You couldn't even get to the place where he could have a criticism based on your work because you were a woman. And so a man gets to at least get out of that gate and get over that first hurdle to start doing the work. He never is kept out of the arena because he's a man. Okay, so next chapter, it's me again. Um, <laughs> I took this chapter. It's called Patriarchy. Patriarchy. An it, not a he, a them, or an us. So in this chapter, he says this, quote, The something larger that we all participate in is patriarchy, which is more than a collection of individuals. It is a social system, which means it cannot be reduced to the people who participate in it. If you go to work in a corporation, for example, you know the minute you walk in the door that you have entered something that shapes your experience and behavior, something that is not just you and the other people you work with. You can feel yourself stepping into a set of relationships and shared understandings about who is who and what is supposed to happen and why, and all this limits you in many ways. And when you leave at the end of the day, you can feel yourself released from the constraints imposed by your participation in that system. You can feel the expectations drop away, and your focus shifts to other systems, such as family or a neighborhood bar that shapes your experience in different ways, end quote. I thought that was brilliant. Um, such a great way of framing that. And I really could relate to it, right? like. Any, even a different group of friends feels different from a different group of friends. Like there's just kind of different norms that we step into and play a role and act, you know, slightly different with different people and in different institutions. Um, and I do have to, to mention that this was something that I really noticed right away when I started my master's degree and I started to have male colleagues and friends who were not Mormon honestly, kind of for the first time in my life since high school, because I went to BYU, which is you know, a Mormon college, and then I went on a mission and then I got married and had kids and I just kind of had friends within my church congregation. And so basically all, and I didn't ever really work. I worked for one year as a school teacher, um, but I didn't really interact with any men who are not members of my church. And so, when i went back to my for my master's degree at stanford it was the first time that i was like in an environment where i was around men who weren't of my faith and there was one class period in particular when i was sitting by my friend mark who's probably around my dad's age and he's a super successful investment banker and a board member on all these you know in all these fancy organizations and he gave me some compliments about how i had contributed to our cohort and to our program and I remember this conversation really well. I I kind of was downplaying it and just saying, "Oh, I'm I'm just a mom. I just care about people. I'm it's just cuz I like to, you know, be the nurturer and I'm a mom." And he just looked at me kind of like tipped his head to the side and looked at me and he said, "I call it leadership." And that just kind of stopped my world and it sank in really deep. And I really noticed how completely opposite it was from the environment that I operated in in my life outside of school because in that other environment, women only lead children and other women, but they are never leaders of adult men. And I started to discern that very noticeable culture difference of when I would be on campus and I felt like, wow, men, it for the most part, Maybe I had an exceptional cohort, but really, for the most part, men regard me as peers here. But then it would switch the coding when I would go to church or certain family groups where I could just feel it, that the men were the leaders of the women and the children. And, um, yeah, I mean, you can definitely feel that difference within different countries, within different companies, and all different kinds of environments where you feel things change. Have you ever, I was going to ask you, Casey, have you ever noticed that difference, like between a more or a less patriarchal environment or how the men relate to women?
1: Yeah, definitely at a young age, um, especially in the sports world, I noticed it because being a female athlete... I I always wanted to play with the boys at a young age, and so I always wanted to be at recess, playing with the boys, playing co-ed soccer. Even up to this day, I prefer playing co-ed games because I like the aggression. I like to be challenged. Um, but ever since I was young, I just remember having interactions with boys and then also grown men, and they would... I would notice they would take it easier on me, be less aggressive, or if uh, another man fouled me on the field, all the guys would bag on their teammates saying, she's just a girl, you need to take it easy. And mm-hmm. I, I hated that <laughs> because I felt like – um they looked at me different, and they treated me different, and it had nothing to do with my abilities on the field and my performance. And again, they saw me as just a female, so I was just treated differently. And I remember that I I almost was enjoyed that challenge because then I could go even more aggressive and be like, no, you can push me. You can push me around because I want to be challenged. I craved the the competition. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was always some barrier. Um, and it started at a young age, little boys telling me that to when I'm in college playing co-ed soccer, same thing would happen where men just treated us differently on the field. So, And this also – translates to also later in my life as a, a personal trainer, I had a old client of mine who was male that I did discontinue working with because of how he spoke to me and treated me in the workplace. And uh, we had this miscommunication and I've always been taught to meet in the middle and, you know, talk things out to see where the misunderstanding happened and then work from there. But um, he did not like that I was trying to speak my thoughts and feelings and, you know, uh, work things out. And he felt that he had to speak over me and um, ended up anytime I tried to actually say what I had, like what I was feeling, he would try to end the conversation and be like, nope, the conversation's over. It's that it's it's done. I just felt so belittled and put down in that Mm -hmm. moment where I knew that if that was my father, who's also a personal trainer, who if he were to be working with him, the conversation would have gone so differently. Ugh. so frustrating. That is.
0: I And yeah, you being in kind of really a male dominated field, right, Casey? I mean, you're in sports and in, in personal training. I didn't even really think about that, but I, I bet that's a big deal like a lot of the time. So that leads into the next point that Dr. Johnson talks about and he he talks about you know there's this systemic issue, this systemic problem about how males are privileged and 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 associated with leadership and strength and women are associated with being followers and being weaker and being, you know, subordinate to the men and being just supporters to the men who do the real work, right? So that's structural, but he also says that, you know, on on one hand, the the organization is more than the sum of its parts, right? Like he talked about, like, there's a company and it has a culture and it's more than the, just the individuals. But then he kind of says the opposite point, which is somehow still true, I think. And that is that any system or institution is is just the sum of its parts, right? Like if, if everybody who is Catholic, for example, just disappeared, then what would the Catholic church be? It wouldn't exist, right? It kind of exists in the minds of a lot of different people. And it's an idea that exists. And so because it's individual people that make systems happen, then people can also make those those systems happen differently. And he says, quote, when a man objects to a sexist joke, for example, it can shake other men's perception of what is socially acceptable and what is not. So that the next time they are in this kind of situation, their perception of the social environment itself, not just of the other people as individuals whom they may or may not know personally, may shift in a new direction that makes old paths, such as telling sexist jokes, more difficult to choose because of the increased risk of social resistance. End quote. I thought that was so Interesting. And he talks a lot about um, the path of least resistance. It's just like the habits we're in because of what has been modeled for us by, you know, our parents and everybody that we've seen our whole lives, that it creates this path of least resistance. And he talks about how it is hard to carve new paths, but every individual who insists like, nope, we're not going to go down that that path of least resistance. Like, oh, it's okay for everyone to tell sexist jokes. We're going to say, nope, I didn't think that was funny. And then it creates a different, it shifts the environment. So here I want to just say how grateful I am, honestly, that things have already changed so much, even since this book was published and it wasn't published that long ago. But especially since I think about, you know, I think about my parents' generation and Sophie and I were just talking to my aunt the other day, my mom's sister, and she was telling us how when she was, she was in the theater program in college and she would literally get chased around backstage by guys and they like not in a playful fun way where she was having fun she said one guy threw her on a mattress backstage and literally tried to attack her and she was just lucky she got away guys were always saying sexual things to her trying to touch her trying to grope her and like there was just that was just okay it was just normal no and we said did you ever think to tell anybody and she just laughed she's like that never crossed my mind. It's just the way the world was. And girls were just taught you have to protect yourself. You have to, you know, don't go around a certain type of guy. Try not to, but it's just going to happen. And she said, even a teacher at college asked her out on a date. And when she said no, he said he would make sure that she could never get a master's degree at the university. And Again, she's like, well, I don't care. I don't, I wasn't planning on a master's anyway, but she didn't think like, okay, who's your boss? Or like, where's the dean? And Sophie's jaw was just dropped. She could not believe that that was the environment when when this person was growing up in her own you know, lifetime. And so, I mean, I just thought of from her to my generation, it definitely got better. Although I did get sexually harassed, constantly at school, starting in middle school and all the way through high school. And even people I respected will tell me like, oh, it's because he likes you. So, you know, if a guy would say really sexually explicit things to me, people would be like, oh, yeah, he likes you. Like, take it as a compliment. Or a guy once, like, literally shoved me, like, and so I smashed into this row of lockers. And they're like, oh, and I, I didn't tell anybody, but I found out later like, oh, yeah, he had a crush on you. And like, that's how he showed it. And so I was like, oh, I guess that's how people act. Or a guy just lifted up my shirt, just like pulled my sweater up past my face in a big group of people just suddenly without me expecting it. And I never told anybody. I didn't know I could say anything. I just felt completely like humiliated and completely powerless. And when I've told my kids those stories, they're shocked and appalled because they're like oh no that would not be okay now that would not fly so I just wanted to ask you Casey to compare do you feel like you know hearing those stories from me and I'm not old yet necessarily but I'm older than you like do you feel like things are better than that and I just wanted to ask what the environment was like for you in high school and college because I think you were in college during the me too movement right
1: right yeah I think things that for sure have gotten better over the years um, and I think back to my mom's time and the stories she would tell me about her, my aunt, my grandma and they're very – they align with many of the stories that you've told me and then also the stories you've shared about your aunt and I I have nothing to compare. Like in high school, I, I honestly felt like I lived in a bubble and I went to Mountain View High School and – I felt like it was always a very safe space and um, no one and not even any of my friends shared experiences where they were sexually harassed. However, when I went to college, it was much different because I met people from all over um, all over the country um, would come. And, you know, like one of the things that we would do every semester is we had to take a sexual harassment course before we could enroll in school. And so there was that education portion where the the school established an intolerance for sexual harassment, rape. And um, so that kind of, it hit me different because then I was like, oh my gosh, wow, like, I really do have to be aware of my surroundings. Like, I, I have to check my shoulder twice. I can't go out at night um, by myself. I need to be in groups. And so they established this intolerance and kind of show that you know, not only is the campus there for you, but also um, educating those around you so that people can be allies for those that are, can't speak up for themselves or feel uncomfortable. Um, but even then, I I did have a sexual harassment experience and I was um, intimidated when I was out with my friends one night and some men, obviously they were under the influence, Um started speaking to me and my friend and I did not like what they had to say. So I stood up for myself and they obviously did not like that. And so they started um, following us and mm-hmm. yelling vulgar things at us. And it was scary. They were trying to intimidate us. And at least I had my friends there, but one of my friends um, had a brace on because she had injured herself. And so uh, it was definitely really scary. And then that was kind of like a real life moment. Like a, a it was a, very eye-opening because I've never had that happen to me. And that was uh, my sophomore year in college. And so I definitely had a firsthand experience with it. And I just started to realize like, even though I have allies around me and that people will stand up for me if I'm at a restaurant or if I feel uncomfortable, I can say something to the hostess at a restaurant or the bartender. I, I will feel comfortable doing so if I can't speak up for myself, but it still does happen. Um, there are people out there that will still try to sexually harass you and intimidate you. And so I still need to check over my shoulder. I still can't go out at night. I still sometimes second guess what I'm wearing just in case. So mm-hmm. I, even though there has been a lot of progress, there there are still things that happen, wrong things that happen to not just females but males as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah. <sighs> I'm
0: glad you're okay and that nothing terrible happened that night. Did they eventually? Did those guys just kind of like give up
1: and go um, away? Yeah, we actually had to run into a restaurant because mm-hmm. uh, we didn't know what they were going to do, and there were no lights where we were because our apartment was kind of in like a couple blocks away, but there were no light street lights. So we were like, "Let's hang out into the restaurant and act mm-hmm. like we're eating," and then they Smart. eventually left. But that Smart. was, yeah, scary. Wow. <laughs>
0: It is scary. And it, it actually leads into just the last quote I want to share from the chapter, actually, exactly, because he talks, the author talks about how um, with male privilege, he says, you don't have to feel privileged to have privilege. And I've mentioned this on other episodes, but one of my very favorite TED Talks is Michael Kimmel. And he he says this quote that I've remembered forever from the first time I saw it, quote, privilege is invisible to those who have it. And so the author of this book, Dr. Johnson, he says that, well, like he of course would never, ever harm a woman, he himself, but he's had to learn like what it feels like to be a woman in this world and understand that women live in a world where men do commit acts of violence against women. And so he didn't even like realize that women did have these fears and that the system often allows violence against women. And so he says, this ties in exactly with what you just shared, Casey. He says, quote, whether I personally encourage or support this behavior, like bad male behavior, is beside the point that women fear and therefore defer to me simply because they identify me as a man or may seek me out for protection against other men or curtail their freedom of movement in ways that are unnecessary for me, all of this affects me regardless of how I think, feel, or behave. In such a world, being able to walk about freely at night, or look people in the eye and smile when you pass them on the street, or dress as you please, becomes a privilege precisely because it is denied to some and allowed to others. And the privilege exists regardless of whether men experience it as such. So he's just saying that privilege exists whether or not the men realize that that's true. And But women know it's true, right? I mean, right. like, just like you just said, and probably in those groups that he mentioned at the very beginning, when women are brainstorming all of these things where where gender injustice impacts their lives, and the men are like, oh, boy, yikes, we didn't even know, right? Right. So anyway. Okay, that's all I got, Casey, for my first two chapters, so you can dive into yours.
1: So I took on chapter four, and it was titled Ideology, Myth, and Magic. So I took this quote. Sam Keen, for example, describes the heroic male identity as a capacity to feel outrage in the face of cruelty to protect the powerless and to heal those who are broken. This kind of real man knows how to take care of the place to which he has been entrusted, to practice the art of stewardship, to oversee, to make judicious things, and to conserve for the future, to make decision to be in a place, to make commitments, to forge bonds, to put down roots, to translate the feeling of empathy and compassion into an action of caring. And then he later says, in many ways, what King describes as heroic is more common among women than men. If anyone puts down roots, commits to relationships, and organizes a life around empathy, compassion, caring, healing, and even protecting the powerless, it is woman. And this quote really stuck out to me because I I do agree that these specific characteristics align with women more than men. The compassion, the empathy, the caring. Um, however, my personal experience um when my parents separated when I was in high school, um my father had to embrace both roles um both gender roles I would say um and it was interesting because I mean it wasn't taboo for parents to get divorced when my parents did um but none of my friends' parents were separated, so um anytime I'd have a sleepover, the mom and dad were always home, and so um I found it interesting that almost all my parents' friends were together and most of the moms were always home and involved with the kids while my friends' fathers worked. So anytime I was homesick, I needed a snack or just needed any type of emotional support, I always looked to my friends' mothers. But looking back at my home situation – my dad had to be both the breadwinner, he had to be the emotional support uh for a teenager going a, through a roller coaster of emotions, um going because I was experiencing my parents separating, puberty, and then he just broke all stereotypes of uh what's considered to be a male and female role and just the stereotypes of a dad in society. So I think because of my personal experience watching my dad have to be my emotional support, be there for me when I needed him most. And then also be the breadwinner that usually society expects from a, a male in the household. Um, I never really thought of men and women having to, like men as uh, the, strong, um, the strong, powerful ones in the household and the woman being the compassion, empathetic. Like I never separated the two. I always thought of both men and women, as compassionate, empathic, empathetic, caring, and healing human beings. And um, I also think that ties into one of the – my mom would always share with me how on my mom's side, which is my great-grandpa, uh, he lost his wife, so my grandma's mom, at um, very suddenly. And so he had to raise three girls on his own. Similar to my dad's story, as in my parents were separated, my mom's still in my life, but um, they both had to embrace both men and female roles. And the fact that he was kind of breaking stereotypes in the 1950s, raising three girls and having to uh, make enough money to bring f- to put food on the table and then also be an emotional support system for his three daughters. Um, I I always think of that um, story when I think of my father and my parents' separation because um, they both did the same thing. They both had to take on both roles and kind of break all societal stereotypes of male and female roles. Hmm. Um, Another quote that stuck out to me was, according to patriarchal culture, for example, men are aggressive daring, rational, emotionally inexpressive, strong, cool-headed, in control of themselves, independent, active, objective, dominant, decisive, self-confident, and unnurturing. Women are portrayed in opposite terms, such as unaggressive, shy, intuitive, emotionally expressive, nurturing, weak, hysterical, erratic, and lacking in self-control, especially when menstruating. Dependent, passive, subjective, submissive, indecisive, and lacking in self confidence. They named a lot of uh, characteristics right there. But before I kind of break down the quote and what it means to me, I just really wanted uh, to make this clear. Just before discussing my culture and my personal experiences, um, I'm going to speak about my Guamanian side. So I've never been to Guam where my family's from, and I'm only. Uh, speaking from the experiences within my home and the story shared to me over the years. So this is not a generalization of the Chamorro Chamorro people, which is Guamanians, and I want to respect my culture. So um, based on uh, Johnson's quote, I do agree that our society is deeply rooted within these, uh, deeply rooted these characteristics within gender. But I personally... Never believed that women are weak and men are strong. Um, On my grandma's, my grandma on my dad's side, um, she grew up in Guam and they grew up in clans and tribes. So families were very big and they all had designated roles for men and women. So hunters, teachers, caretakers, weavers. Um, obviously, that evolved over time because when the United States um, saved Guam from Japanese rule, um, there was exposure to new technology and American government. So they, they became more Americanized and they stepped away from the clans and tribes and um, embraced the new technology. And so, however, even though things were changing, the traditional roles of men and women never changed. So men were still seen as the providers. And women were expected to care for the children and maintain a household. Um, Based on my grandma's stories, um, she showed me how women were viewed as more submissive and subservient and dependent upon the men. I mean, I've even had um, times where I've been asked, did you cook for him? Or like when you have children. And that just reinforced the idea that my life is to have children and serve under a man, which I don't agree with. But that's based on that dialogue and those stories shared with me, that's what was reinforced. Um, But despite my grandma's upbringing, she broke many traditional ideals of her culture and expectations as a Chamorro woman. Um, So a little bit more about my grandma. Um, she came out to the United States when she was about 19 or 20 years old, and the reason why she left was because she was told by her family that she couldn't continue her education, and she needed to stay home to help, help within the home. And my grandma was not with that at all, so she left, for, left Guam for the United States um, because she, wa- she saw more for herself, and she wanted to receive an education beyond high school. Um, And that was really hard because she comes from a very family-oriented culture where family helps out everyone no matter what you're going through. But she made that decision for herself to leave for a country she literally had no idea about besides green pastures with cows. And she was really wrong when she came out here because there was no <laughs> green pastures and only some cows. Um, But yeah, no. So it's kind of interesting that... um. My grandma's, my Chamorro culture, Guamanian culture, there's those traditional roles and you kind of see those um, characteristics that Johnson talks about that women are portrayed as um, nurturing, taking care of their big families, um, very passive and um, indecisive and submissive to the men. But my grandma does break away from that and broke those traditional barriers when she did move out to Guam and move away from Guam, sorry, and come to the States. And she ended up being a single mom, raising um, her son on a single income and really stepping away from those traditional ideals and ideals and roles and um, made something of herself. So Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's uh, a little bit more about my Guamanian Chamorro side. I kind of use those terms interchangeably. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah.
0: Okay. I want to ask one question about this, Casey, because people are so complicated. All of us are, right? We're all so complicated. and, And we have these areas that we're, you know, that we've made a lot of progress and then areas that we're still learning about. But I remember a story about, I think it was this grandma that you're talking about where You guys were watching TV, and some woman was, I don't know if it was when Kamala Harris was being announced as the vice presidential candidate or something, but your grandma had a reaction to a woman being in power that surprised you and you shared it with me. Would you mind talking about that?
1: Yeah, um, I briefly remember that moment, but I just remember being kind of in shock about how she was speaking about. This uh, it was Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris, and how because she was moving up in a position of power, how she really looked down upon that and spoke about it in a negative light. And it it's very funny because she's my grandma is a very independent woman, and I mean she raised her son on her own and didn't need a man to depend, like she didn't need anyone to depend depend on. She moved out here all on her own. But it was just interesting to watch her kind of uh, speak about a woman getting into a bigger position of power and in such a negative way. And I don't know. I just, I, I think my brother even challenged her and like asked her some questions like, and it just didn't, it didn't make sense, but it, mm-hmm. it's just kind of ironic that, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. That she's personally
0: empowered, but that she still had those stories about what is appropriate for men and what's appropriate for women. Right. right? I mean, that's yeah. how I'm reading that situation because I've had conversations like that too, where I'm like, wait, you think what? Like, right. <laughs> right. wait, what? a woman can't be a leader because yeah it's just these and scripts
1: that we get. That I we... I'm so glad that you kind of piece those um those things together for me. Like those gender roles like how she sees how a man should be and how a woman should be are still very heavily ingrained in her because of how she grew up and what she saw over time. Even though she is very independent and doesn't need anyone, but when it comes to certain things that are like ingrained in her brain, yeah, she has a certain perspective on women coming into power in politics, which is mm-hmm. interesting.
0: Yeah, so people, we're we're all just so complicated, right? Right, <laughs> <laughs> trying to un trying
1: to undo this knot, right? Yeah. We 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 all have this knot in our brains. And then chapter six was titled "Thinking About Patriarchy," and. Johnson, I'm just going to go straight into the quote, says, Manhood ideals make an indispensable contribution both to the continuity of social systems and to the psychological integration of men into their community. I regard these phenomena as givens, but as part of the existential problem of order that all societies must solve by encouraging people to act in certain ways ways that facilitate both individual development and group adaptation. Gender roles represent one of these problem-solving behaviors. And I find this true like I that I mean through history that's what's happened and that's why we're fighting to break away from these gender roles and what we think that women and men are supposed to do um and to stay within this order. But one of my family members, my great grandmother on my mom's side, um, she ended up, she was one of the first women to go to college. Uh, She went to a teaching college and actually taught music and raised her children and made her own money. And that was during, I think the 30s or 40s, I'm pretty sure. And so she was breaking barriers and not staying within her role as a stay-at-home mom, taking care of her children. She wanted to make something of herself. She wanted to be educated. She wanted to continue her education and lead the woman in her family um, to uh, beyond just, you know, staying within the home, cooking for the children, maintaining order. and yeah, that's what my takeaway was from that quote. Mm-hmm. I had
0: a thought on that quote, too, if that's okay. Can I throw something yeah. in here? So one thing that I thought of with that quote, where he says that society created gender roles in order to make things run smoothly, is that, you know, he says it's a problem-solving behavior. And so one, one of the thing that I thought is like, well, yeah, that makes sense. If you think of any organization from like little kids in a clubhouse saying like, okay, who's going to do what right in our club or, you know, to a church organization or a family or a company like any group of people. The simpler that you can make the structure, the more easily things will run. And so, yeah, I guess it does like grease the wheels and make things run really well if you're like, okay, everyone with blonde hair will do this and everyone with brown hair will do this. And so maybe for a time in human history, it really did run more easily for high status men to be in charge of all the other men and for all women to be or for all men to be in charge of all women. And, you know, we can see that everywhere. We can look back at feudalism in Europe and how that determined the class stratification in Europe for centuries. And there's this little poem that I heard that people used to say in Europe, whatever thou art, act well thy part, right? So you're born into your class, you're born into your role, and the whole machine runs better if you're just a good little cog in that machine and you just do what you're supposed to do based on... You know, the family you're born into. And we see this everywhere in the world, right? The caste system in India is another example of that. And where one group of men comes in and says, well, this type of person is going to do this job and this type of person will do this. And these are the rules for all the different levels. And then, of course, usually people claim that God made it that way. So nobody can question it, right? But so the next question is like, okay, yes, that has occurred in nature for sure. But you know is it is it effective to keep society running smoothly maybe but is it just and you know examining history on this podcast the french revolution says no that is not just i should not have my you know all of the choices in my life limited for me because of the social class or the caste, the color of skin, the gender that I was born. The, the American Revolution says, no, you can't just limit people based on, on you know, these factors. Gandhi, no, you can't do that. And so the, the women's liberation movement says, no, you cannot limit women based on just this biological trait that you can't change. And human beings should be able to fulfill their own unique potential without limits that say, you know, Sorry. You have to do this because of who you are. Sorry, you can't do this. And, and you know, for women also, we're saying, let's ask even a more fundamental question, which is like, what gave men the right to make those designations in the first place that that, that group could be like, yeah, we're the ones, I'm the president of the club. And let me guess, did God make you the president of the club? <laughs> yes, as a matter of fact, he did. And so I get to make the rules about who does what in society. Anyway, I think we're just bringing that into question. So I appreciate that Johnson points out like yeah, this is it's it's a problem-solving strategy that people created gender roles, but we're at a point in human evolution that we're able to ask is this just? Is it still working? Is it able to it does it enable people to achieve their potential and I would say I would say no. It does not.
1: So I was just going to ask you your thoughts, Amy, Um, in chapter six on this quote I found. Quote, Sam Keen suggests that patriarchy was an adaptive part of human social evolution that saved humankind from the gynocentrism of early goddess-oriented societies. Before patriarchy, Keen writes, societies labored under a servitude to nature that was broken by the transcendent male god who sanctioned the development of individualism and the technological impulse to seize control and have dominion over the earth keen continues this god who stands above the fadedness of nature commands men to stand above nature and society and woman and take charge of his own destiny life in the garden of the goddess was harmonious but the spirit of history called for a man to stand up and take charge it is easy to forget the triumph of that moment when men rebelled against their fate threw off their passivity and declared thank you mother but i can do it myself
0: hmm well, that's misogyny. I mean, that's that's real mis- misogynistic, sexist gender theory is what that is. Um, that's just that same ancient association of women with the earth and with nature. And that's seen as lower than the masculine, which is rational, powerful. And it's an ancient, obviously deeply sexist embedded archetype. And it's present in many men's groups, And it's been on the rise for the past decades. And I think one reason why Sam Keane and now Jordan Peterson is so popular with white men is because as we know, so many white men are feeling lost and disempowered and especially as social dynamics shift and change and they don't know what their place is in the world anymore. They're kind of grasping for like, well, wait, I'm a man, I wanna be strong, I wanna feel empowered, which is true and I do want men to feel strong and and powerful to achieve their own potential and and reach their destiny. So I think there's a fairly simple response to this. I mean, he talks about like the male God subjugating the female God and and men taking over female nature and you should stand above nature and women, he says. Standing above nature and society and women is what he said. Literally, it just it blows my mind. Um, But anyway, I would think like, no, men, please, there is nothing more that I want for you than to see boys and men exercising their own power to be the best engineers, the best wrestlers, the best actors, the best writers, the best ranchers that they can be. Whatever you want to be, be the best version of that. Please like, develop your power to be a great spouse and to be a great parent and to be a great inhabitant of this planet. Please be empowered, achieve your potential, be strong and be as masculine as you want to be. But being your best self and having personal power and taking charge of your own destiny does not mean that you have power over me. Any more than me achieving my human potential and taking charge of my destiny means that I get to have power over you. And so him saying, thank you, mother, I can do it myself, Great. That's a process we all go through when we become adults to say, thanks, mom and dad, like I'm an adult now and I'm t- and taking the reins. I'm going to have my own life. But it does not mean that we get to go out into the world and bully women and bully people who are different from us and bully the earth into submission. So it's that classic power to, power to do things does not equal power over other people and power over um, in a, in a, an abusive way. I just think it's a really immature way of viewing manhood. And there are such better ways of of being masculine and being a man. Okay, I'm done with my rant.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So um, moving on to chapter seven, um, we both actually picked chapter seven as being really important. So we're both going to share quotes. And Chapter 7 was titled What Patriarchy. And the quote I picked was women however are seen as biologically endowed endowed with a core connection to life that men simply cannot that men simply cannot have. From this feared, hopelessly loved and held in awe by their children and until the advent of patriarchy some 7000 years ago firmly seated at the symbolic center of goddess-based religions. So I thought that Johnson's perspective was very eye-opening because I've always related having children and being pregnant as fulfilling the expectations of society in our moral duty. I mean, I know there's more to that, like when my parents talk about having me as a child, that I was a blessing and <laughs> that they love me so much. And <laughs> uh, But also just hearing the stories that my grandma shared with me and just over time, like learning about history and how I kind of viewed pregnancy in a negative light based on just learning how women were treated in history. And again, sharing the stories of family and friends. I, but then when Johnson gave me kind of gave me this perspective that showed that the creation of life is so powerful and kind of threatening in a good way for women. And I think about All the stories shared about the woman on my mom's side who put put themselves through college, worked well-respected jobs, and raised children all at the same time and how powerful that is and um, how society may have, at the time, looked down upon their life choices and thought that they were jeopardizing order of gender roles by working a job and raising children but and like almost saw that as a threat, but how strong and powerful it was for them to have children and then also make make something of themselves like my great grandma being a music teacher and then also being in a band and then my also my great great grandma um working at the Pentagon. So I think that's really cool that um that it's it it's more than just fulfilling your Uh, expectations of society or your moral duty. It's so powerful to have a child and then also make something of yourself. And um, whether that's doing something that you love and are passionate about or having a a well-respected job. And yeah, that's what I took away from that quote. Hmm. That's awesome. I love how you know so much about your ancestors, by the way. I
0: What a gift. That's really neat that that got passed down to you.
1: Yeah, I, I am really thankful for my mom for sharing so much with me because she always wanted to always share with me um, that how strong and powerful the women in our family are and how independent they were. And that's something that she always wanted to leave with me and so I'm really grateful for knowing those stories um, yeah. because they were really breaking barriers at such a – like a, breaking barriers a long time ago. And to share those stories and continue passing them down is something that is so special. So mm-hmm.
0: oh, That's awesome.
1: I'm just going to share one quote from Chapter
0: 7 that I found really compelling. And he's talking about what people refer to as reverse sexism. Okay, so what he says is, quote, The problem with false gender parallels is that the significance of what happens to people differs profoundly from one gender to the other. On the surface, the experience and behavior of women and men may appear to be similar, but this impression falls apart if we look at the larger reality of people's lives. Negative stereotypes about men, for example, can make them uncomfortable and hurt their feelings. This seems to be the most common cause for men's complaint and a major reason for women's reluctance even to talk about sexism when men are around. I have to admit, just yesterday I was reading this book, reviewing it at my parents' house, and my dad walked in, and without thinking, I shut the book and quickly stuffed it into my bag because I knew it would make him uncomfortable and maybe make him sad and maybe make him mad, but I didn't, I didn't know what he was going to think. I did not want to make my dad uncomfortable or hurt his feelings, so I hid the book. So that's true. But resuming the quote, but anti-male stereotypes come primarily from women, a subordinate, culturally devalued group that lacks authority in a male-identified, male-dominated, male-centered society. In other words, if the source is a woman, the damage that stereotypes can do is confined to personal hurt with little, if any, effect in the larger world. This is because anti-male stereotypes are not rooted in a culture that regards men as inherently dangerous, inferior, ridiculous, disgusting, or undesirable. Such stereotypes can therefore be written off as the bitter ravings of a group beneath being taken seriously. Anti-male stereotypes also cannot be used to keep men down as a group, to lock them into an inferior and disadvantaged status, to justify abuse and violence against them or to deprive them of fair treatment. When women refer to men as jerks, for example, they are not expressing a general cultural view of men as jerks. If our culture really regarded men as jerks, the population would be clamoring for female presidents, senators, and CEOs. Instead, we routinely look to men for leadership and expertise in every area of social life, whether philosophy, government, business, law, religion, art, science, cooking, etc. Prejudice against women, however, has deep and far-reaching consequences that do a lot more than make them feel bad, for it supports an entire system that privileges men at women's expense. Sexist prejudice does not just target individual women, for it is fundamentally about women and strikes at the mere fact of their being women, each expression of anti-female prejudice always amounts to more than what is said, for it reaffirms a cultural legacy of patriarchal privilege and oppression. So I just thought that was a really clear explanation of that um, phenomenon that is really kind of tricky and and knotted up. To use his knot analogy again, and I just felt like he pulled the thread out really clearly. And I thought, yes, that is, that's what that is. That's all I have for chapter seven, Casey. Okay, so that brings us to the end of our discussion. And I wish there were more time that we could highlight more passages, but we wrote out a really long outline with a lot of quotes that we weren't able to share that we didn't have time for. So listeners, if you're interested and you're not going to buy the book, you can see a lot more on this in the show notes. And so you can just look at some more gems of wisdom from this book if you like. But we'll just wrap up by sharing in the end, instead of takeaways like the ones we usually do, Casey, you and I had talked about before that we were just going to share a couple of action items because I know one thing that especially Eric usually says as we're talking about this stuff is he's like, okay, I'm convinced there's a problem. What are what can we do about it? Um, what are the action items? What can I do to make things better? Because it's really hard to just kind of marinate in all of the the sadness or the, you know, the focus on what the problems are without feeling like we can have some power to make things better. So we're going to share just four points and we'll take turns. So the, the thing that we can do, some things that we can do are number one, acknowledge that patriarchy exists. And I have to say that's one of the big points of this whole podcast project that I'm doing is I, wanna, well, I wanted to understand patriarchy better and I also wanted to increase people's conversations about kind of acknowledging the system that actually exists.
1: Number two is pay attention. So first of all, read. You have to be open to the idea that what you think you know is, if not wrong, so deeply shaped by the patriarchal worldview that it misses most of the truth. So a good place to start is just a basic text on women's studies. Uh, Men who feel there is no place for them in women's studies can start with books about patriarchy and gender that are written by men. Sooner or later, however, men will have to turn to what women have written because women have done most of the work of figuring out how patriarchy works. I have to say, I love that quote. And even there, I was like, "Oops, there's
0: a little gender bias right there." Because, like, you're right, right. Yeah can Can you imagine saying to a woman, "Like sooner or later, you're gonna have to read a book, by, right. written by a man," because men of done So where... true.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> So even him, even Dr. Johnson, I think he didn't catch that. It's so funny. We're just so accustomed to living in a men's world. We don't even we don't even see it. Sooner or later, you'll have to read a book written by a woman. Ah, oh, so funny. Okay. Number three, uh, learn to listen. And Alan Johnson says, if someone confronts you with your own behavior that supports privilege, step off the path of least resistance that encourages you to defend and deny. Do not tell them they're too sensitive or need a better sense of humor. And do not try to explain away what you did as something else than what they are telling you it was. Do not say you didn't mean it or that you were only kidding. Do not tell them what a champion of justice you are, or how hurt you feel because of what they're telling you. Listen to what is being said. Take it seriously. Assume for the time being that it is true, because given the power of passive least resistance, it probably is. And he then tells a story of himself as a professor and how a student of color in one of his classes came up to him after class one day to say that he kept cutting her off when she was trying to, you know, participate in the discussion. And that she had noticed that he didn't do that to his white students. And he writes that he was maybe a little bit, he had an inclination to say, like, whoa, I mean, I'm an expert on inequality and injustice. I would never do that. I'm not racist. Like, what are you accusing me of? But he quieted that voice. And instead, he just said, you know what? Thank you for pointing that out to me, because I want to be aware. And now I will pay attention to that. And And he said, I will make sure that I will
1: never do that again. So thank you for telling me that. And then number four, little risks do something. Recognize that the system is just made up of people. Take responsibility for small actions. In something as simple as a man following the path of of least resistance towards controlling conversations and a woman letting him, or being silent in the face of men's violence, the reality of patriarchy in that moment comes into being. This is how we do patriarchy, bit by bit, moment by moment. And so my main takeaway from that is that being silent is not enough. Being passive is not enough. And we all just need to stand up to a sexist comment, to any kind of homophobic or racist joke, and stand up together. Awesome. Well, Casey, thank you
0: so much. Thanks so much for reading this book with me. It was rather dense, and you were a really good sport. I, like, gave you a textbook, basically. (laughs) Um, But it was – I thought it was a great book, and I learned so much from it, and I learned so much from having this conversation with you, and I just loved it. So thank you so much for doing this. Thank
1: you for having me, and it was a lot. It was a dense textbook, but I really enjoyed – going over it with you and getting to share some stories about me and my family. And thank you for giving me that platform.
0: Yeah, thank you. And those personal stories you shared were a huge highlight for me. So thanks. Thanks for sharing, Casey. And Thanks to listeners for being with us today. I'm really excited to announce something special for our next episodes of Breaking Down Patriarchy. A few months ago, I was thinking that I really wanted to research the ways that patriarchy has impacted LGBTQ people. And I don't know almost anything about LGBTQ history. And so I identified the essential text that I wanted to use. I identified the supreme court case Obergefell v Hodges which resulted in marriage equality as our essential text. And so I asked my classmate and dear friend, Matthew Nelson, to be my reading partner. And he said, yes. So I was over the moon, but then not only did he read Obergefell with me, but he also gave me three books of queer theory to read. (laughs) So it's my very first queer theory um, after Judith Butler. And so I loved that he gave me an assignment back and Next week, we will present one of the most important pieces of this project that I've done. It's a four-episode series on LGBTQ history. It's centered on four essential texts. So the first one is that Supreme Court case, Obergefell v. Hodges, which happened in 2015. And you can either read that in its entirety or just read about it online. You can even just read about it on Wikipedia to give yourself some background. And that's enough if you want to just read that one text. But if you're really interested and you want to dive deeper, you can also read the other three books of queer theory that Matthew assigned to me. He's a history teacher, so that's probably just his MO. (laughs) But he gave me The Trouble with Normal, which was written by Michael Warner, and it was published in 1999. The next book is No Future, Queer Theory and the Death Drive by Lee Edelman, and that was published in 2004, and then Cruising Utopia The Then and There of Queer Futurity by Jose Esteban Munoz. And that was published in 2009. And we'll start this whole series with our first episode next week, just, just sharing personal stories. And that episode is a doozy. So it will be a really emotional conversation. And I learned a ton by reading these books and talking to Matthew. So I'm very excited for everyone to hear it. Please forward it on to everyone you know, because I do think it's a really important topic. So join us for those very important conversations next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy.